0: So I was talking to a homeless man one day. Some friends and I were hanging out downtown Greenville, and a homeless man stopped us and asked for some money so he could go buy some food. So we had plenty of time being, you know, poor college students. And so we decided to invite him to eat with us instead. I would have loved to have heard a story of how he got there, but he said he couldn't stay. So we went with him and we got something to eat. During our conversations, he found out that I was a Christian, and so he asked me, do you know what the Bible, the word itself, means? Well, at the time, I didn't know that the Holy Bible came from, uh, from Biblia uh, Sacra, sorry, I can't even read that, Biblia Sacra, or the holy book. So I asked him, well, what does it stand for? Basic instructions before leaving earth, he said. And his food came and he went on his day. And, but I never actually forgot about that conversation. I thought it was kind of strange. I mean, so I began to look into it. Like what is the Bible all about? Why is it here and what is the point of the Bible and what does the word Bible mean? So I found that out. Some people say that the Bible is there for advice when you don't know what to do. If you have a question that you'd like a divine answer to, you open up your Bible and you look it up. But that isn't a very good question answerer, it turns out. And so it didn't explain why the book of Leviticus was there. At least not to me. Like, here's the question, who should I marry? So you open up your Bible and you point there, hmm. Leviticus 20, 1 through 2 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Oh, good, this is straight from God's mouth. I'm so excited to see what he says. Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of strangers who sojourn in Israel and who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. Perfect. (laughs) That doesn't answer my question at all. I sort of think that's what the Bible was there for. Maybe, I thought, the Bible is including heroes that I can imitate so I can be a really good person. But whenever I'd find a hero, they would turn out to actually be just as messed up as I am, with the exception of Jesus. Maybe that was different. So I read and I pondered and I prayed and I asked questions. As I've grown on my walk with Christ, I have learned a lot. And I'm still learning. And I feel like I'm an uncommonly stupid person sometimes. But at the same time, I'm beginning to see something. And I would like to share one of those things with you guys. When I started studying the Bible, I noticed something that surprised me. The Bible is actually not about us at all. But it's all about God. It's really the story of God from the beginning of creation until the end of time. And I'd like to briefly share that story with you. So first thing I noticed, God created the world, and it was good. In the beginning, God created everything. Everything that we can see was created by God. And the way he did this can be found at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1. Most of you guys will know this, but it's really a part of the foundation. It's foundational to the story of God. Now, the reason that God did this is definitely something to ponder, I mean, why create a world and us at all? Was God lonely? Was he bored and just wanted something to talk to or something to do with all of these creative juices that were pent up? Or did he not know what would happen if he did create us? Right now, we can see the fallout of man's dominion over the earth. The world is actually a shadow of what it appears to have been at the beginning. And we've done a great job of messing it up. So since God knew what was going to happen at the end result, why Why bother creating us at all? And I pondered this for a while, and I'm not sure I know the answer. However, I was listening to Nabil Qureshi, who is a, a Christian apologist, especially in the Muslim field. He was talking about this very question. I think I am starting to understand a little bit about why. I don't claim to understand this fully by any means, but it's more like turning a corner and seeing a faint light of an answer in the distant darkness. I believe that we are just about to scratch the surface. Here's how Nabil Qureshi explained why God created everything. From eternity past, God has lived an existence of community. There is one God from eternity past, but Father, Son, and Spirit, and they love each other. Love is essential to who God is. It is a part of his essence. God is love because he has always lived in community. Now, when God makes us, the Father takes a look at the Son. And out of an overflow of love for the Father that he has for the Son, he decides to populate the world with people who are made in the image of that Son. And he makes all of us in the image of the Son. He makes a bunch of us replicas of the Son. We are not God, no, but we are in his image. And then God walks with us. Because the Father loves the Son, God walks with us in the garden. One of the things that Nabil's point uh, points out is the reason that God created the world and us was not because of us or even because of us, but God the Father created the world and us for the Son. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in ourselves, our issues, our problems, and our our needs that we forget who we were created for. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, puts it this way very, very well. He, who is God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he, Jesus, God the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All these things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent." For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So, the reason that we are here on this earth, the solar system and the myriads of stars and plants and animals and us, was not to give us an infinitely creative mind or To give that infinitely creative mind something to do. Or to give God something to talk to. All of this exists because God, the single being God in his three persons, loves each other. The persons of God love each other so much that the Father made all of this. All of this to fill it with the images of the Son he loves so much. And then to walk and have fellowship with those images. That is beautiful. It is not so heaven could be filled with people after they die. We were created for God. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. See, God designed everything. He intimately prepared a place for his image bearers to be. Quite possibly, like a father excitedly and lovingly makes something for his child. In my mind's eye, I can see God stretching out the stars with glee. Oh, the sun is going to love this. Here, I'm gonna put a nebula that no one will ever find. and It'll be beautiful just for the sun. Now, I can also see him creatively creating other things too. Like, ah, here, let's make a plant that will only bloom at night. Or let's make a plant that will only reproduce by dropping branches and creating other clones. So cool. Now, I don't know if the father actually did that. Obviously, the Bible doesn't say that he did, but I do believe that the father carefully planned out every single plant, animal, fish, bird, star, planet, and yes, person. Yes, he could have simply spoken it all into existence like, bam, the Bible doesn't say because it's not as important as the story of God. What is important is that God created the world, everything in it, everything on it, and everything outside of it for himself, and it was good. It was just how God designed it. In a very literal sense, the Father created a vast, beautiful, intricate, and most importantly, good kingdom for the Son. And this kingdom would be full of subjects that bore his image of their king, not just in the way they looked, but also the way that they showed their, dom- their dominion over the land that they lived in. And then, today, as we hop in our cars and go home, we will quickly see that everything is not good anymore. So what happened? What happened is we chose a different way, and that is not good. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, he tells us a bit about how this played out. Although they, or us, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. See, when God at the end of certain days said something very important, he said, and that it was good. He was saying, this is the way I've designed this particular thing to be. When we see that we automatically think that we have an idea of what good means, but is that what the, uh, what the author means by good? See, when, when you come home and your wife asks you how your day was, and you say, it was good. It's not the same thing as what God was saying here. When we say good, better, or best, it's not the same kind of good that God uses here. Basically, there are two things. There's good according to what God says, the way that God designed things, and not good, the way that God did not design it. That is important. God wasn't saying God wasn't saying that it could have been better, but that it is good just the way he designed it. In this good creation, whatever it looked like, man found out that he had the option to do things differently. God said to the man that he could eat of any tree of the garden. Not only that, but he said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the whole face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. Except, obviously, the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, was this an actual tree? I don't know. Genesis says that it was a tree and that they ate the fruit, so I'm going to go with that because I believe that God's word is is useful and inspired. Some people say that maybe Genesis is being poetic about that, and that might be figurative. I don't know, and honestly, I don't think it matters. What does matter is that God designed something and that it was good. Then man came and said, you know, I don't really like that definition of good. I think I can make it better on my own. So what? He ate the wrong fruit. I mean, no biggie, right? It's a piece of fruit. If you take what is good, however, created by a perfect being and you change that thing, what does that make it? It makes it not good. Let's think of it another way. Let's say that I had the Mona Lisa right here. We all agree that it's it's an amazing piece of artwork. It's beautiful. And some people have said it's one of the best paintings in history, I don't know. But it's, it's certainly fantastic. And let's say I brought it out here, put it on here, and everyone has said, oh, wow, that's the Mona Lisa. That's the actual Mona Lisa. And then I said, you know what? It's pretty nice. I mean, she has a nice smile and everything like that, but I think I can make it better. And so I cut out her nose. <laughs> I changed it. I made it better. No, that'd be a travesty, right? I would be sued or beaten or murdered in my sleep. Who knows? Maybe go to jail for ruining this piece of work. But just because I can change something, something as a masterpiece, that made it very bad, didn't it? Even if I were just to put one piece of of oil paint on there, it would be ruined. In the same way, we did that with God's creation. Just look at the stories in the Bible. Early on in human history, everyone goes crazy doing whatever they redefined as good. It got so crazy that God said that there was only evil in their hearts continually. So God sent a flood and he started again with Noah and his family. Then there was absolute insanity afterward when people were even saying that there were other gods. This happens over and over again, even in God's chosen people. Abraham, the patriarch of the Jews, decided that he should fulfill God's promise by knocking up his, servants, his wife's servant. And how did that turn out? Really not good. God kept his covenant with Abraham's children, and even when they were, were in slavery in Egypt, he brought them out of slavery. And he even established laws for them and gave them a tabernacle that they could fellowship with God at any time they wanted to. And still the people went their own way. God sent judges to lead his people. He sent prophets to guide them as well. And still the people went on their own way. At the end of the book of Judges, we see a horrific story about a Levite, someone who's supposed to be set apart to God for worship and his concubine. It's such a horrible story, I don't want to read it. But it's at the end of Judges, if you would like to look at it. And as I was reading this, I said, why in the world is this story in the Bible? That is horrible. And so I asked Pastor Rob, and uh, he took me to the very last verse of Judges, Judges 21-25, and he explains it perfectly. "In In those days, there were no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so Israel, yes, they got a king to solve the problem, but that was not how God designed it. And the king could not save humanity. And that too went horribly wrong. The people were taken over by many other nations, and still they went on their own way. Every single subject in God's kingdom disqualified themselves, even us. Paul in Romans mirrors Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes when he says this, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they become worthless. And no one does good, not even one. See, because of our rebellion against God, we all deserve to be cut off from God in death. But this is not the end of the story. We were not designed to be able to, divine, to define good. God has already set that standard. And culture doesn't define good. We can't define good, only God. Jesus, God the Son, loved the creation that the Father made. And it was made for the Son, yes. And even by him, and he loved it. Even when we messed it up, he still loved it. He loved us and each one of us way before we could ever destroy ourselves. Even while we were actively rebelling against him, God loved us. He loves you so much that he decided to reclaim his kingdom and redeem his subjects to pay the price for our rebellion. And Jesus came to reclaim his kingdom by paying the penalty for his subjects' sins. The penalty for our rebellion is death We all deserve to be cut off from God, to be cast out of his presence. The penalty must be paid because God is just, and justice must be carried out. He would go against his nature if he simply let it slide. The most amazing thing in the world is that Jesus, God the Son, the only one who could pay for our sins, did just that. He set aside his royal heavenly features and he humbled himself by coming as a human. He came down to a world that was broken beyond hope. Now imagine this. God, the Son, enters into a world that he created by himself. He saw the world when it was good. And he watched the whole thing go sideways. And he watched his gift tear itself apart. And he still came. And dwelt among us. He came to that messed up, horrible world into a little town and he was born and subjected himself to poor parents and to people that he assumed had that their parents had him out of wedlock. He took a job as a carpenter and probably went to a little synagogue where the preaching was eh, kind of not great. <laughs> He gathered some of his disciples and patiently taught them for three years. He did wonderful things, including miracles, and he taught anyone who would listen. Then he died a terrible death on the cross. All for us. Why? What could he possibly hope to gain from them? What a terrible deal. Paul in Colossians 1 says why. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, has now reconciled. he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, no, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And in Romans, Paul also shares this, for all have sinned, yes, and fallen short of the glory of God, yes, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. To present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God, and that you could be presented that way justly. That is why he came. You disqualified yourself from God, yes. But Jesus took your penalty so that you could be seen as holy before God. But that righteousness can only be attained by the righteousness of Christ and God's faithfulness. And see, that's why we sing songs like This is Amazing Grace that says, uh, who breaks the power of sin and darkness, whose love is mighty and so much stronger? The King of glory, the King above all kings. Who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder and leaves us breathless in awe and wonder? The King of glory. The king above all kings. And who brings our our chaos back into order? It makes the orphan a son and daughter. The king of glory. The king of glory. Who rules the nation with truth and justice? Shines like the sun in all of its brilliance. The king of glory. The king above all kings. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love that you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You would lay down your life so that I would be set free. Oh, Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me. And now, because the Lord has redeemed his people, we can sing from the bottom of our hearts Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, worthy is the King who conquered the grave. The very God who created thunder and countless amounts of stars redeemed us from our sin. He took our punishment so that sin and death would be conquered. We all went our own way trying to fix what we had destroyed on our own. Kings, emperors, chiefs, generals, judges, all types of rulers had attempted to correct what was wrong with us, but there was no savior to be found in them. Even our current government is trying to create order and life in this country, but just like the governments of old, they could not do it, and neither can it. Humanity has been trying to fix itself from the very beginning. And Jesus comes onto the scene throughout an astounding hardship and cost to himself. And he secures the place of his righteous kingdom. He reestablishes his kingdom when he redeemed all of us his enslaved subjects. Not only that, but he shows us again how we should be and who we should be in his teachings. And he spells it out. This is what God said is good, so do it. When he preached the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, you think that you are supposed to look like this, to do all this sort of other thing, but this is how I've designed it to be. So follow this instead. As a heroic prince rescues his hurting people from certain destruction by his enemy, Jesus came and he won. And that is our God, the one who saves. And for those of you who feel like you've disqualified yourself from God's favor, you are correct. You have. You have angered an almighty God who is holy, but that is not the end. Jesus has redeemed you, he paid your price. For your sins, all of your sins. He paid for every murderous thought that you've ever thought. He paid for every child that you may have aborted. He paid for every hand that you'd laid on your wife. He paid for every bit of money that you stole. He paid for every act of adultery that you've ever committed. He paid it all. It's all gone. God has been appeased by the blood of Jesus. So what are you going to do with that, is the next question. Will you continue in sin so that grace may abound more? Or will you reject it and still search for another way? Or will you humbly and probably tearfully accept that and subject yourselves to God? See, Jesus also spoke some other parables. And Luke wrote down this one. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants. And he went to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that he could give some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully. And they sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I said, "Ah, I shall send my beloved son. Perhaps they will listen and respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours instead. And so they threw him out of the vineyard. They killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to those people? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to another. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is it that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And another parable that Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So, when the plants came up and bore grain, and the, the weeds also appeared, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, didn't you sow good seed? How then do, do we have all these weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to, to go ahead and gather them? And he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with it. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barns. And another time, Jesus spoke this parable. When the Son of Man comes into his glory, and the angels with him, then all will sit at his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and will be he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, When did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to the least of my brothers, you did to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And those will go away into an eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. He's coming again to fully establish his kingdom and to separate the just from the unjust. See, Jesus is coming again to rid his kingdom of cre- uh, and his creation of all evil. He will bring everything back to good. He does that by separating the just and the unjust. Those who subject themselves to God will be with him in his new heaven and new earth forever. And those who still refuse to subject themselves to God's definition of good will be cast out into a place prepared for them. Whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. How could a loving God send people who reject him into a place that's described as an eternal fire? How does that even work? First, We have to go back to the beginning. Who has God the Father, the one who is the judge, loved since before creation? The Son. Would it be loving loving the Son if the Father simply brought all of those who, to their dying breath, rejected the one that sacrificed everything for that person into his kingdom? Would that be loving? No. That is why the king in the first parable came. He destroyed those wicked tenants. He gave the vineyard to another tenant because they hated the one whom he loved. Secondly, is it more loving to force people into the presence of the one that they hate or to provide a space that those people can live without any reminders of the one they hate? Which is more loving Those who hate God, who think Christianity and the sacrifice that Jesus paid is stupid, they who refuse the good that God is will be allowed to be in a place that does not have good. That is the very thing that they hate is good. There are many theories about hell. And whether it has flames or not, whether it's a place of eternal torture or not, it is a terrible place. It is a place that God is absent from. He has removed everything good from there so that those who hate him need never be reminded of him. Imagine a place where human depravity is set loose. Those whose strongest desire is for sex now lives in a place without rules. His conscience has been removed from him and he can do whatever he wants to to the people around him. Imagine the horrible things that he would do. Think of the man who is so full of himself that he would kill people because they would not give him attention. Like some of these shooters. Imagine what he would do in that place. Or the mother that would beat the child for not obeying her. The psycho who tortures his victims. Whether or not there is fire is the least of the least scary thing in hell. Man without God is horrifying. And that's exactly what they want. They had the option to choose, and they chose. And all those who repented of their sins stand in the presence of God. And with the chorus of angels, they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Because God created a world, he redeemed his creation, and established it once and for all. And all those who hate God will be free to live in a place where they may do whatever things they like to do. They are free to do whatever they deem to be good or pleasing to whomever they will and no one will have an authority over them to tell them what they cannot and cannot do exactly what they want. And they can be their own God in a world of other gods. Now I wish I could go back and talk to that homeless man who told me what the Bible means in his idea. I would love to sit with sit down with him and hear his story and then tell him of what I found as I studied the Bible. I would love to share with him the amazing story of God. and I'm thankful that I had that conversation with that man because it made me search out what the Bible is teaching and I was surprised that it didn't meet any of my expectations. And I'm glad that it didn't meet my expectations. I hope this message whets an appetite for God's word in you. And I hope that you go and you read it with renewed vigor because there is nothing quite like it. It is absolutely an astounding book. It is the story of God. And that's what the Bible is about.